Hello world, you're listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo-Linux user group audio podcast. KWLUG discusses topics related to free and open source software of all kinds. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month in Kitchener, Ontario, Canada. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, so you can give it to others, remix it, or even sell it, provided you abide by the terms of the license and share alike the works that you remix and redistribute. For more information about KWLUG, visit kwlug.org. For more information about this podcast, visit kwlug.org slash podcasts. In this month's meeting, Ian Kelly introduces Civi CRM, a constituent relationship management system. In addition, five KWLUG members, Brent Clements, Jason Eckert, Jason Paul, Aaron Sol, and Andrew Sullivan Kant share how they got into Linux and free software and where that interest took them. All right. Good evening, everybody. My name is Ian Kelly. I am a. I'm currently the general manager at PeaceWorks Technology Solutions. I have been there for just about nine and a half years. I've been working with Civi for most of the time that. Um, I've been there. Um, Civi CRM, um, people like to call it a customer relationship manager. I prefer to call it a constituent relationship manager because it really has um, the ability to track how you interact with everybody that interacts with you or your organization, whether they're customers, they're vendors, they're partners, uh, members, all of those things. Um, I always like to uh, tell people or describe it much like a spider web where you have all of these points that link to other points and so on and so forth. And you, you can get from one place to the other in just about any way you can think of the various relationships in it. Um, I, this is going to be fairly informal. If you have any questions, just go ahead, shut them out, put them in the chat, whatever. Um, and I will try to answer it. There are many different pieces to Civi and it's really easy to go off on a tangent and go deep in various things. Um, so, Please uh, rein me back in if I tend to do that and let me know if everybody can see it and see the screen. What we are looking at, I'm sharing my screen. This is our demo Civi CRM installation that we use for our clients. And it has a bunch of junk data in it, but it has a lot of the functionality turned on in there so we can go through many different things uh, about uh, Civi. Civi CRM is in essence a bolt-on for a content management system. The one we use 99% of the time is Drupal. Um, and that is just because we have found that to be the content management system where the integration is the tightest, the best. Um, you know, it's the Everything I've come across in Civi with Drupal has been free. There are no paid modules or anything like that, or, you know, pay extra to get the, the pro version of it. The other thing is Drupal is highly customizable. It is open source and there's a lot you can do 
with Drupal and Civi with all of the hooks and APIs and so on. Um, the You can install Civi CRM on WordPress. I'm not a fan of that integration myself. Um, I found it's it's limiting. Um, I think that when you try, if you are sticking to the base GUI interface in Civi, then you'll be fine. It's when you start to have to do customizations, then it feels like you're fighting WordPress to get things done and it looks clunky. One of the first things I like to explain to clients when we're talking about Civi CRM, Civi CRM is a back-end tool. It is for you for managing your customer data, your um, your constituent data. It's not a front-end tool that you're going to post on your website and have it flashy and have lots of graphics and things like that. That's not what it's about. It's about managing your data. That being said, there are a number of different ways that you can collect and then display Civi data on your website, but it's not your front end. You use your CMS to access that data, both for putting it in to Civi CRM and drawing it out. Um, the basics of Civi are, um, you know, you have your contacts where your contacts are individuals, households, organizations. That is the default installation, but you have the capability of defining different contact types. Um, so, you know, if you were a church, you could define your, your, um, different groups. Um, you could have, um, and any any sort of grouping that you can think of, you can put in there. Um, activities then are the different things that you would do with a um, with a particular contact, how they interact with your organization, whether that's you know phone calls, meetings, so on and so forth, and then you know obviously emails and so on. Contributions are really the monetary part of Civi CRM, how money from your constituents flow in and out, whether that's through membership fees, donations, all of those things. And again, uh, I believe that in the introduction um, was a Paul that was saying that Civi is geared towards not-for-profits. It, it really is. So, you know, all of the things that not-for-profits not tend to do in managing their day-to-day -day interactions that's what Civi is about. So contributions, donations, all of those things are a big part of it. Um, campaigns. Um, so, you know, if you are having a bike-a-thon or a golf tournament or something like that, then you can set up campaigns where people can collect money because they're going to be part of the bike-a-thon and they want people to sponsor them, that sort of thing. That's what um, personal campaign pages are about. Um, and, you know, you can do group campaigns as well and, and different things like that. Events are what the name proposes. Um, so, you know, if you're going to have a hold a 
a gathering in the park and you're going to invite people to show up and speak or, you know, like this uh, meeting that we're having here, this could be an event where you could get people to register for it. It can be a paid event or a not paid event, um, all of those things. And Civi has the capability of doing that. One of the things I should have mentioned with contributions is it Civi allows you to take online donations so um, or online payments through a payment gateway. So whether that is PayPal, one of the ones that we personally like to use that has pretty good integration with Civi and Drupal is IATS. And we like it because IATS it has great support. And they will actually talk to us. We don't have to continually go through the client because oftentimes the client doesn't know um, all of the details and they'll phone us up and say, I'm having this issue. Can you help us out? And with IATS, we can phone up, we can sign into the account, we can, you know, walk through different things with them and they will help us tr troubleshoot without playing the phone game with the client in the, in the middle. Mailings um, are what the name yeah, suggests. Can I ask a quick, quick question? Because other people might not know this. Uh, what is IAS? IATS. It's it's the name of the organization. IATS. It is just the payment great gateway that we. Yes, Paul. Thank you. Um, it is the name of the payment processor uh, and the ah, organization perfect. that provides it, and we like it. Stripe is okay. I I found tech support not as great with um, Stripe, and I'm not sure the Monero's payment gateway a payment processor is still is up to date. It might be now, but IATS tends to be the one we lean towards just because it makes it easier for us. Um, okay, Thank so you mailing. You're welcome. So. Mailings, what you can imagine, you can send, you can do mass mailings through Civi CRM. Um, you create a group of contacts and then you can send those contacts, um, mailings. You can also send mailings if you are, so let's say you create an event. Um, you can set up that event so that a week before the actual event, it will send out a reminder to everybody that has signed up and just say, hey, remember you signed up for this event. It's a, a week away or on such and such date. Make sure you have in your calendar, so on and so forth, right? That sort of thing. So sort of like the MailChimp type of thing. Um, typically, we will install a tool called Mosaico for doing mailings. It adds more of a GUI, easy to use um, templates and designing of messages because quite frankly, I think Civi missed the boat a little bit when they did their default mailings. A lot of um, average users, non-technical users really struggle with getting a really good message created and set up in Civi, and they have a lot of difficulty with it. They want something closer to MailChimp, where it's all drag and drop. They don't need to know HTML and so on. 
And so that's why we use something called Mosaico. It's just, it gives Civi CRM mailings the MailChimp type look and feel. Memberships. Um, you can have, uh, you know, if you are an organization, let's say the Kitchener Waterloo Unix group, um, you know, if you wanted to keep track of members, have members sign up and have memberships that expire and renew and so on, you can do that. Memberships, like most other things in CRM, can be paid memberships or they can be free mem- mem- free memberships, different levels, um, and, and so on and so forth. So you can definitely uh, – I've yet to come across anybody who couldn't do what they wanted with memberships – through CiviCRM, some of it has had to be some custom things where, you know, a membership allowed you to post on a website, for example, but once your membership expired or lapsed or whatever, then everything that you had posted gets um, expired on the website and unpublished, so it's no longer viewable, that sort of thing we've had to do. Reports. I so reports the built-in canned reports in Civi CRM are reasonable. Quite honestly, I, however, steer people away from. Everybody wants custom reports. Everybody wants to say, "How do I create this report?" or "How do I do um, give this report to my clients?" and things like that. And I. I will tell them, use the canned reports if they meet your needs, great. If, you know, you can do a little tweak or something like that, fine. But I steer people away from it. In general, in my experience over the last nine years with CiviCRM, what people want to do is get their information into CiviCRM. They want to be able to quickly find it. And they want to be able to get that information out of CiviCRM. So, I will focus, instead of on reports, I will actually focus on the search capabilities of Civi CRM because there are many different ways to search in Civi, and it's powerful, and just about every single search that you do in Civi, you can export directly to text files, CSV, um, Excel, that sort of thing. And in my experience, People want to add more to the information in Civi and then give it to somebody else. So um, 99% of the times dumping their search results into an Excel spreadsheet or um, what's an open source <laughs> spreadsheet package, um, a CSV file, whatever, dump it in there, manipulate it in some fashion, and then, uh, you know, uh, give it to whomever needs it. Okay, so that's a quick, very quick run through through the different um, pieces of CiviCRM. There are definitely other pieces in here, and you can turn them on and off depending on what you are actually going to use. Um, so in where did it go? System settings, the components that is the Civi components, right? So the Civi components are by default, um, you know, the ones that we typically turn on for every client, events, 
contribute, which is your contributions, um, mail, and reports. So those are the basic ones that pretty much every single CIVI installation we do utilizes. There are different components, as you can see, CIVI grant, CIVI pledge, CIVI case, and CIVI campaign that can be turned on. Um, so CIVI grant as a not-for-profit, um, they tend to oftentimes be applying for grants, tracking grants, tracking the progress of grants, that sort of thing. And that and CIVI grant is something that helps them manage that. Um, pledge is, you know, somebody will pledge X amount on a recurring basis and this will allow them to say, okay, so-and-so has pledged $50 a month for the next 66 months and it lets them track it, automatically deduct that off a credit card, that sort of thing. Civi case is for case management. So, you know, I, I don't know of anybody that really uses this, which is unfortunate. I see lots of different potential for it. It allows you to track cases. So if you think of a, um, a typical caseworker type of scenario where you will have an, a person or a family or something in that you interact with and you want to track their interaction through their quote unquote life with, um, with your organization. And then civic campaign is campaigns. So, you know, you may have uh, work in an organization where you do multiple campaigns, um, every year and you want to track so you might do an event a fundraiser you might do a mailing all of those things that are part of a specific campaign and you want to track them individually but you want to also see what sort of impact those different things have on your campaign while you when you set up a campaign, you just basically give it a name. And then when you do something in Civi, you say, this event is part of that campaign. This mailing is part of that campaign, which will then later allow you to go back and take a look at all of the different things you did for that campaign and how did they actually impact on that campaign. Does that make sense to everybody? Any questions on that? Okay, so um, one of the things I mentioned at the beginning is um, the ability to customize all the different things in Civi, and I'm going to jump around in this list a little bit um, and start with relationship types. By default in Civi CRM, it you know it sets up individuals, households, and organizations. Those are the defaults. But you can set up multiple different relationships in Civi CRM and multiple different contact types. And a relationship is how two contacts relate to each other, and they don't necessarily have to be people. They, If you think of them as entities, entities. So you could think of, um, you know, 
parishioners to a church or employees to an employer, um, different members of a household. So that's not necessarily just um, husband, wife. Uh, it could include grandparents. It could include siblings. It could include aunts and uncles, whatever it is, however you do it, however you conceive of it, you can set up those relationships. And like accounting, there are two sides to every relationship, right? So either, you know, you have an employee and an employer. So the the organization is the employer of an employee. So, you know, I I said before about how I view Civi like this giant spider web. If you were, you know, saying, okay, I know Paul works at XYZ company. Do we have anybody else at XYZ company? Or if you even can remember where Paul works, if you went into Paul's record, it would tell you in here, and I don't, I don't have any relationships set up on this, but if I did, I would then see, you know, oh, this is a relationship that, so Paul would be set up as employee of the organization. Then I would be able to click on that organization. And then in that relationship list, I would see everybody else that works there. So there's many different ways to get to a piece of information. You don't necessarily have to search you don't necessarily have to remember every single piece as long as you remember one piece of data then you can go in there look at it and then find something else um as that related to it so um the most common way to search in civi crm is I, I use that, how things interrelate, click on something, and then follow that chain. The second way is probably this um, default search here, at least for me. I, I have taken a poll in our office, and I'm one of the few people that actually use this. But just by typing in somebody's name, and my staff loves Harry Potter, apparently, um, but... As I type, it shows the top 10 matches, only 10. That doesn't mean that there are only 10, but it shows the first 10 it comes across. So I could at this point just hit enter, and it will show me all of the results. Or I could from here put, oh, it's final Harry I want. So click on that, and I would pull up that constituent record. And I would see all of the details that I had on them, all of their, you know, um, everything. The activities, the relationships, the groups, the notes, uh, all of those things. And then find whatever information I want about that individual. Um, you can, if you, that is probably the best way in my opinion if you're looking for a single contact to do it especially if you know something specific about that contact if you want to find a group of contacts or you want to you're looking for more um so 
you can use this basic form for searching for contacts. So you can put in a part of an, a name or an email uh, type of contact. So if you wanted to know, find all your household contacts in here, and we probably don't have any. So let's see, organization. Do we have any organizations in here? Yes. So this will show you all of the organizations that have been in Civi. Then I could click on a particular organization. And now I'm going into relationships. And these are all the relationships that we have in the system. That's that sort of thing, right? So, um, and there are many, many different ways you can search. Did anybody have any specific questions on Civi that they wanted me to touch on? Just, just so I make sure that we answer it. Um, so in a nutshell, that is searching. Um, how do you make sure emails go through? Many mailing lists go to spam. That is a really good question, and that is something that we have expended a lot of time and effort. So, um, and how do you comply with privacy and GDPR? Um, okay, so let's start with the mailing list, and how do you make sure the mailings go through? Realistically, mailings are, and mailing deliverability is more about the setup of the server. Right. So you need to make sure that on your server, you have set it up properly. SPF records, DMARC records, all of those things um, are set up properly. One of the things that we have done for our clients is we have subscribed to a deliverability service. So this is a service that is specifically known as a mass mailer and they are so they're registered as such and they set up all of their servers and their mail um, gateways in such a way that they are conforming to all of the rules about hey I'm doing this legitimately I'm not a spammer and so on and so forth right so our mail goes through that service and that increase increases uh, the deliverability significant. Yes, I am allowed to say which one. The one we use is Postmark. Um, it's relatively inexpensive. It gives us full control and it also um, allows us to give our clients uh, a sign-in so they can see their particular piece of the mailings and the deliverability reports and so on and so forth. We have used Spark post in the past. Actually, we have we investigated um, for one of our clients that was using it. They weren't a fan of how Spark post did their things, and they found it a little more expensive. So um, that that's what we uh, we use for the deliverability postmark. We really like it. It's like I said, it's inexpensive, and it allows us to pass it on to our clients very cheaply. Um, as far as privacy in GPDR goes, um, I'm going to see if we have it in here. So years ago, um, when uh, Castle first came out, 
we uh, contributed to the community um, a CASEL module. And CASEL, Canadian Anti-Spam Legislation, is all about making sure that you're sending message, you're communicating electronically to people that want you to communicate to them or you are legally able to communicate to them. So, for example, if you ha- you are um, an organization that has memberships and you you are allowed to send membership information to your members regardless of whether they've told you not to contact you, right? Because they've also signed up as a membership and you're le- in, and you're legally responsible to notify them about certain aspects of their membership, then you have to you are allowed to do that. But in general, Civi allows you to specify under email, um, you know, on hold, bulk mailings, primary. You can you can specify a client is um, do not mail, right? So regardless, if you have a client and you've set them up as do not mail, or they've unsubscribed from a mailing list, and you have them set up in a list that is getting a bulk mailing, Civi will automatically say, oh, they're on hold and not mail to them. So you don't really have to worry about that. You can keep their contact information. They can stay on the mailing list because Civi automatically takes a look at that list before sending it out and will not mail to somebody who who is on hold or do not mail or do not contact and so on. Um... GDPR, um, so GDPR and Castle, um, as far as the deliverability, I believe, are fairly sim- similar. I have to admit, honestly, I'm not as familiar with GDPR. I thought it was more to do about um, the ability to send in somebody contacting you and say, what information do you have on me? I want to see it, I think. And um, you can definitely do get that information very quickly out of CV in one of the canned reports. And so Nathan has a question. Maybe this is way too specific, but when I was using a few years ago, we found it quite difficult to allow specific members access only to their regional locale. Um, so this hasn't been answered already. Um, Nathan, could you give me a little more details about that? I'm just curious, um, when you say access to their own regional locale, that sounds more like an, a Drupal Civi CRM integration, um, Obviously, I, I'm not 100% sure what you're talking about, but I would probably be using um, a, a Drupal view to pull it out. Ah, yes. So then definitely I would be utilizing – so Nathan has a, a group chat. I don't have to read it to everybody. Um, yes, I would definitely be using the Drupal um, 
security and access control lists and things like that to make sure that we are limiting the information that people had access to. So one of the things I said at the beginning was that, you know, Civi really is a back-end tool. It allows you to... Um, interact with the content management system and pull information from Civi and display it through the content management system. And I would use that to control how people, what data people are seeing in Civi and making sure that, you know, in Drupal, you set up people you set up groups for people and then you define the different roles that they have in, um, in, in the content management system. And I would use that to control what information they see. I would not give anybody in this scenario, um, access to Civi CRM directly because it tends to be more of an all or nothing thing. Right. I would control it through by setting up various different screens and views and so on in um, Drupal to see to allow them to see what information they should have access to. Oh, customized data and screens. Custom fields is another big part of Civi CRM. Um, so Obviously, the, where it gets its power is up by allowing you to track what information you see. Sorry. Um, Andrew and Ron also had questions. Did I miss? Oops, I don't see them. Oh. What prevents organizations from using Civi CRM missing features? Do they not hear about it? Not enough people to support it, etc. Um, so I think... It really is one of the, uh, a, a bunch of those things. I think, uh, the biggest thing is people just don't hear about it. Um, but it's also not for the faint of heart. It's not flashy. It's not marketed. It's not Salesforce where, you know, you have all these people marketing it and all of these organizations that are productizing their contributions to it and so on. So it's it's not as well known. That's a big part of it. And also you hearing about Civi CRM is the first step. The the because then you have to figure out how to install it, how to customize it. I went to um an N10, I can't remember what N10 stands for. It's a an organization for not-for-profits event a few years ago. And they were talking about how, in general, people start out using a CRM. They use it for about three-ish years, and that's at the point they get comfortable with it, and they decide, okay, this is really how I really need to be using this tool. So they basically start over and they um, revamp the CRM. And it doesn't matter whether it's Civi, Blackbaud, Razor's Edge, uh, Salesforce, whatever. It takes some time to use it, feel it out, figure out its capabilities, uh, decide on what your needs and wants are, and then you get a really good picture of how you want to use it, and then you really start using it. 
hopefully that answers your question. And how does one, Ron asked, how does one input a CSV file that is a list of existing contacts, assuming the format is okay? Um, yeah, that, that is the easy part. Um, you know, realistically, we do this all the time. Um, so in contacts, um, import contacts, that's really what it's about. Um, so you would pick your data source. I don't know why they make you do. Oh, I've never gotten really tried an SQL query. Uh, it really seems counterintuitive to me, but someday I might play with it. CSV is what, what we use. Um, because it's so flexible and it allows us to say to the user, okay, this is your templated CSV file. You can use whatever your spreadsheet is and this is the format it needs to be in. Put it in, um, in this format and then we'll import it. You need to clean it up. You pick your file. You tell it the first row contains column net, not, uh, headers. I strongly recommend that you do that because it allows the mapping of the fields to make more sense, right? And then what type of contact, individual, household, organization, those are the contact types we have in there. Um, then for duplicate contacts, this is important. Um, this is an important piece for you to understand if you're doing that sort of import. Um, do you want to skip them? That means it's just going to ignore duplicates. Do you want to update them? Because oftentimes what we will do is, you know, we have one piece of information that has changed for our contact and we get it through a spreadsheet. So we want to update existing contacts with that information, right? We don't want to delete the or skip them or whatever. We want to update existing information because oftentimes what we'll do is we'll do a dump of the data, give it to somebody and say, okay, here's the data, uh, make any corrections and then don't touch the contact ID field. And we'll use that to match when we come back and update the data because quite frankly, it's often easier to work in a spreadsheet when you're doing a mass update than it is to go through one record at a time, right? Um, fill and then fill in information or no duplicate checking. I really don't recommend the no duplicate checking, but hey, <laughs> it's there. Dedupe rule is how does Civi CRM decide what is a duplicate and what is not? And um, I'll go into dedupe rules in a second. But basically, you pick which one you want to use for content matching when it's going through the process. Specify your date format. You follow through the prompts. I don't have a file ready to do the import, so I can't click on continue. But it allows you to do your mapping so that, you know, um, first name equals first name in your file and so on. And it allows you to save that. If this is going to be an import you do often, you can save that mapping so you don't retype it every time. It will tell you um, once you do the import, it will tell you if there are any failures and allow you to download in CSV format what those failures are, and for each line, it tells you why they failed. So you can 
automatically uh, you can go in and fix it and redo the import. Um, Follow-up to importing data contacts, fee card support. Um, not that I know of. I don't know of a V-card support, but that doesn't mean somebody hasn't written a tool or you couldn't write a tool yourself to do that. I just don't know of one. For deduplication, same shameless plug. Microzip data in Vancouver. I wrote a lot of their tools. The company's very thorough. Deduplication is one of those things um, that is the bane of every CRM. Um, I've had experience with various different ones, Razor's Edge, obviously, CBCRM, um, uh, Blackboard. And it because the CRM is such a heavily used tool for users to input data, you're relying on your processes and procedures and your quote-unquote rules for data entry to really keep your database clean. And, you know, uh, and it gets even worse when you start allowing people to fill in their own forms online. So sign up for an event, you know, one day they might come in and they might put in Ron. The next day they may put in Ronald. The next day they might put in something completely different, right? So um, that sort of checking, you really have to think about the rules and what you choose to use for duplication. Um, and matching. And in, you know, one of the interesting parts about my job <laughs> is that I get to work with a lot of different organizations that work across the globe. So, you know, for me, one of my knee-jerk reactions, I was having a conversation with a client and I said, you know, you might want to actually think about using email address because everybody has an email address and it has to be unique. Or, you know, their address and their postal code. And they said, well, you know, the problem is that with that is we have churches in Africa where there are 30 people all sharing the pastor's email address and that's how we communicate to them or this particular country has no postal codes. And it's like, how do you solve these issues? Right. It makes it very, very challenging. Deduping is, yeah, (laughs) it can be challenging and it is the bane of uh, every CRM. It is eight o'clock already. (laughs) I feel like I've, uh, I've barely started. Yeah. So obviously the CBCRM is a big topic. There are a lot of different pieces to it. It is open source. It is relatively easy to install and play with. Um, I, I say go for it. Try it out. Play with it. Um, and there's just so much. It has rich APIs and um hooks and um you know it really ties in very well with drupal so play with it so 
Uh, yeah, you know what? I think, uh, Paul, I would um, – there are so many <laughs> different pieces of CVCRM that we could use. I, I think if, you know, your your group here has a specific part that they would like to um, hear more about, I would more than I'd be more than happy because we've barely scratched the surface. We've done a lot of cool custom uh, programming for a CVCRM. So, um, yeah, if there's a particular piece of it somebody wants to hear more about, I would be more than happy to do that. Any final uh, questions? Hearing more about the event management would be interesting and entirely self-centered. Uh, we do event management, so hearing how that hey. might be useful would be kind of cool in the future. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, um, no other questions. Then thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, for presenting. Um, let's get started on the other part of the presentation. We won't have too much of a break in between. Brent, are you ready to go? I'll make you the presenter even though you don't have slides or anything. All right. Can you hear me now? Okay. Are, are, can people hear Brent okay? You may need to up your volume a little bit. Uh, okay. All right. I can just talk louder. Yep. Can reposition the microphone? All right. That might help. Okay. And I'll give you a nudge when you're at 10 minutes. All right. I won't talk too long. So, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Brent. I've been involved with the LUG for a long time. Um, I generally, when I'm doing a presentation, it's not really on the technical side, but more on the practical side of using Linux software. Um, so, I heard about Linux when I was a student way back in the 90s. Pretty much, I heard about it pretty much when it was first introduced, but I had no idea what the point was. Um, I probably saw it for the first time in 96, 97. And um, it, was, uh, it wasn't until I, I would install it a couple times and I, okay, this is cool. I made it work. That's awesome. Um, but then just didn't have anything to do with it. Um, I first started using Linux. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out the year, probably somewhere around 2002, 2003, um, when the primary hard drive on my computer died and I had no way to boot the computer. So I was completely without any ability to do anything until I discovered the Nopix live CD. Um, and just so everyone knows, I can't actually see the chat on my phone because I'm talking on my phone here. Um, but uh, so the Nopix live CD got me up and running. I had a web browser. Uh, I had a wired internet connection through the wall to the living room. Um, it, uh, I could type up documents. I could basically do what I needed to do with the computer. Um, so this was my first actually using Linux, and I loved that distro. It, it was a fully functional computer, just the way I liked it. Um, it was a year or so before I actually found any Linux distro that I found as useful out of the box as that disk. So I think it was Mandrake Linux, uh, when it was still called Mandrake. Um, was the first distro I ever installed. 
Um, I uh, believe I found Ubuntu, um, but it was um, it was the need to install the audio processing, uh, the real time kernel uh, mod- modules, and getting media working on it that uh, I was not able to get it to work um, by manually configuring it because I didn't have the skills. But uh, then I discovered a distro called 64 Studio, which was basically a media-oriented Linux distro. It came with the uh, the Jack audio connection kit, all the audio drivers, the real-time kernel, or the real-time kernel modifications. I guess it's not really a real-time kernel. And um, I, it uh, had all that functionality out of the box. I loved it, and I used it until I had to reinstall it on a computer, and there was a bug in one of the packages that, because of the date, had passed a certain date threshold, um, the package would fail to install, and the installation would abort. Uh, Annoyed, very much annoyed. I hated that, and uh, I was frustrated until I discovered Ubuntu Studio, which is basically the same thing. and so I've used Linux um, over the years as my primary uh, distro, I think since like 2002, 2003, I think is about when this happened. I think Windows XP was a thing when I started using Linux. Um, I also actually spent money on OS2 Warp version 3 and version 4. I loved that operating system too. That's a different story. And... Uh, yeah, I've done uh, some amateur uh, media production, um, some audio processing for music and uh, live theater, um, and uh, a little bit of graphics work. I'm playing around with Blender now quite a lot, um, all open source software. Um, every computer I've had since then, up until my current most powerful laptop, which unfortunately my new job does lend itself to having access to some Windows software. So I've installed the uh, the uh, Linux subsystem for Windows, um, uh, or the Windows subsystem for Linux, whichever it's called. Um, and uh, so it's there if I need it, but uh, I did need to run some actual Windows software uh, related to the hardware we use at work. But yeah, I've, I've been a user of Linux without having the the technical prowess that most Linux users have for uh, going on two decades now. Oh my God, I am old. Uh, Yeah, Um, can't think of anything else I need to say. So I'm really happy we did this topic because I think it's cool to to hear about uh, people's experience and why they got involved in this sort of thing. So with that, I guess I'll pass it on to the next person. Unless anyone has a question. Yeah, so if anybody has questions, you can put that in the chat, and then I will hand the presenter token over to Jason Acker. All right, so um, how do I do the presentation again there, Paul? You go to the plus sign at the bottom, and then you'll do the upload a presentation, and you don't need to re-upload it. You just need to change where the check mark is. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, guys, so... Um, uh, this is my lightning talk on how I got into uh, open source, and I came into open source from the Unix world, um, which was kind of easy because Linux is a Unix-like operating system. Um, during my university years, we used a lot of Sun and BSD Unix systems. 
uh, we were aware of the Free Software Foundation and Richard Stallman's philosophy, but there was always this assumption that we'd all go to work for companies on proprietary software after graduation. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like a, like a niche thing. The one other thing to, to keep in mind is around that time in the early 1990s, um, open did not mean open source. Uh, open just meant that one proprietary company's junk worked with another proprietary company's junk, right? Open source was not a thing until like around 2000 until, until, uh, Eric S. Raymond came up with his famous book, right? Around 1993-94, though, we experimented with Linux. Um, and this was before the first Linux distribution, Slackware. And it was really, really tough to install it. Even when Slackware did come out, I mean, trying to install it made us cry. I mean, getting the file systems right, getting the system to boot. And then after the system booted, what could we do with it? What software could we install? It was just a nightmare. Um, so we went back, we retreated with our, you know, tails between our legs back to our Unix systems, right? Around the same time when I was in university, I worked for uh, a couple of famous companies, non-open source companies. Uh, I was a C developer on the drivers and interfaces team at Sun in 92, a job I got because I like pineapple pizza, if anyone needs some solid career advice. Um, and I also was on the Motorola 68000 team for Microsoft work for Mac at Microsoft in 93. And the problem was, is Sun did not care about open source, even though they used it in some of their products. And Microsoft thought that anything that was free, any software that was free of any kind was evil. So that was the situation back then, right? There was like not a lot of warmth to open source. Then I woke up one morning, realized I had a wife and a kid and I needed a nine to five job. So I got out of academia and back into academia, just took a job teaching, right? Like <laughs> most other people. And uh, so I, I got hired at Trias and they were, they had the world's largest SEO Unix training center. And that was kind of neat. Um, so we ended up teaching in their college divisions that they opened up. Uh, we ended up teaching SEO Unix, which was proprietary. Um, but later on, we kind of moved to Linux here university stuff, which was excellent, but very short lived. Uh, and then I got headhunted by publishers because there were no Linux books in the market to actually write a Linux textbook for the academic market. And so I did that with a colleague of mine and that's uh, this one right here. Um, unfortunately, I ended up writing like 95% of the book and my colleague ended up writing 5% and it was so terrible I had to rewrite the 5%, but I still kept his name in the book because he was there for moral support and he got me coffee. So that was my, that was how I got into open source pretty much. Um, it was like right through the, the, the Unix world. And my impression of open source in the year 2000 was that it was a very, very mature, stable, capable server, right? But it wasn't a great workstation. I mean, I ran it as a workstation. I ran Red Hat. But unless you were like a like a Unix or Linux geek, um, it was, I mean, fighting with X386, if anyone remembers that, come on. Like, that was horrible, right? I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. But when it did work, it did work well for about, I don't know, parts. So that was that was Linux back then. But as a server, it was incredible. Like, I mean, hands down, I would replace any other server with it. I also, in, in 2000, I read The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which is the book about why open source is going to take over the world. Um, and I read it, and it was a difficult read. It was an academic read, but it's definitely rewarding, and it does make sense. 
I just didn't think that it would ever catch on at that particular time. So I thought it would be like two decades, but that changed very quickly, two years later. So in 2002, that's when I realized that floss would be the future, that open source would be the future. And there's a couple things that kind of uh, made me think that. First, <clears throat> we started to see products on the market in wide scale use, open source products that were actually you know, demonstrating why open source is good. They were more stable, they were faster, they evolved quicker, things like Firefox, right? Um, and the other thing was I got a tour of SharkNet from a friend of mine at Compaq, and I ended up uh, later on doing a lot of work for SharkNet um, by making those contacts. And this was Canada's largest Beowulf cluster of deck alphas. And their largest node was called Great White. It was in Western and it ran Linux. And it was fast because everything was developed using an open source first approach. In fact, it was the exact same open for first uh, sorry, open source first approach that we use on all software products today. We just didn't have GitHub back then, right? And when I saw that, when I thought, you know, reusable software and everything had to be open source first in our development planning and methodology, I realized, oh, this is definitely going to take over. And so later that year, I was also asked to give a, uh, I don't know, a Q&A session at Microsoft in Mississauga, because um, that's where they were back then. And uh it was kind of through our corporate membership um, in training and they wanted someone who knew Linux, Java and open source. So I said, sure, why not? Okay. And basically it was a bunch of defensive, emotional salespeople on one half of a board table and a bunch of developers who didn't want to be there on the other half of the table. And they asked me a bunch of questions. And basically I, I remember telling them, well, I kind of think that open source is the future. So it's probably better to embrace it somehow. That wasn't the answer they wanted, but I still took my free Xbox and got over there. Of course, we all know open source one. I mean, Linux itself kind of runs the world today, right? In uh, 2021, Gartner estimated that nearly half of the global population, 3.5 billion people, were Linux users, whether they realized it or not, because pretty much every device runs Linux, not just, you know, the cloud and, you know, Android smartphones and Chromebooks and stuff, right? And so what I use it for today um, is it's my main, it's my daily driver. Uh, I run Asahi Linux on Apple M1 hardware and it's Arch Linux basically, but I also run Fedora. I do a boot Fedora on my ThinkPad with Windows because I need to have Windows for teaching. And all my servers in the cloud run Linux. Most are VMs or containers in Azure, uh, Amazon Web Services and Linode, but I also support one droplet in DigitalOcean. That's what they call VMs, just droplets. Um, and nearly everything that I support today, everything that I develop today is targeted for Linux servers in the cloud as well. So as you can see, my little cute developer there from KW, right? Um, but I mean, that makes sense. I mean, development frameworks and cloud technologies steadily evolved around open source these last few decades, right? It was very, very aggressive. Licenses are well-defined, especially permissive open source licenses. Um, tooling has never been better. It's a really good time to be a developer or a Linux nerd, right? And you know what? I still write textbooks on Linux. So, I mean, here's a tweet from like last year <laughs> of someone who's using my book. She's a undergrad comp sci student uh, because you have to take Linux and undergrad comp sci now across the board, right? I mean, um, my books are used in IT and developer college programs and undergrad comp sci programs worldwide. 
the sixth edition of that first book I showed you is coming out in May. <laughs> um, and I've written 15 books over the last two decades on Linux. So I've written all the, the Novell SUSE Linux books that map to their certifications and whatever they want. And I've also written a bunch of books that kind of map to LPI and Linux plus certs, but they're like textbooks first with all sorts of other stuff. So I've written lots of textbooks on Linux that include a lot of Git and cloud stuff. And, um, you know, it's something I'm good at. It's something I enjoy doing. And I like spreading the open source gospel. So that's my lightning talk, my under 10 minute lightning talk on how I got into open source and, you know, my impressions of it and what I use it for today. The three questions that, uh, that Paul asked during that email that we should kind of touch on, right? All right. And if anyone has any questions, you can drop them in there. If not, I will stop that presentation or I'll let Paul tell me how to stop that presentation. <laughs> um, I'll just give a presenter token. So I'll give uh, Jason Paul. You can go next. All right. Can you guys hear me? Yep. All right. I'm just going to share my screen. I've got the presentation here. Hopefully this works. Uh, can you guys see my presentation? Looks like it's up. All right, great. Uh, so yeah, just a quick uh, quick presentation. Um, so uh, this is me. Um, I've been using Linux since 2001. Um, I moved here in 2004 after going to, uh, I went to university in uh, at Carleton in Ottawa for software engineering and um, Mohawk for uh, computer networking. Um, you can check out my website if you want more info. Um, so I started with uh, Windows 3.1, I think. I, I, I had an Apple, I don't even remember, like Apple 2C that um, I don't even think it had a proper, a proper operating system. Um, so this is what I started with in, you know, in, in high school. Um, I was mostly programming on Visual Basic, QBasic, um, didn't know anything about uh, open source or other operating systems, didn't know about Unix. Um, at one point, I think I went to a computer lab and I was like amazed that I could type in, you know, I think it was Mozilla and it would bring up a browser. And I was like, what is this? I don't even know any of it. Um, so when I was in university, um, I was literally um, in 2001, I was literally programming in Notepad, writing Java code, executing it in the command line window on Windows. Um, and then I also had to do some C++ programming. And um, they had, I, I had a broken Borland C++ compiler that did not work properly. So I had to go to the lab to use their version of it. Um, and this is on, I think I was on Windows 98 at the time. And um, one of my flatmates on, uh, in the residence is like, hey, come check this out. I've got this new operating system that has a built-in C compiler. I'm like, well, that's really cool. Um, that could be really interesting. But I only had the one computer and didn't know anything about virtualization. So I kind of tucked that in my back pocket um uh, to come back to, to come back to later um so in 2002 i started i actually managed to scrape up some extra hardware and uh i i installed a couple different distributions i started with mandrake 8 um i tried out red hat 6 um i think i spent an entire weekend compiling gen 2 from stage one. I, I built it from stage one the instructions were really good um but you had to like boot up you had to boot and then you had to bootstrap the machine, compile your own kernel, and then build everything from source. And you had to set, I set CPU flags and the whole thing. And it, I remember X took like two days to build and compile. And this was on like a Pentium 2 400. Um, I did use Red Hat in college a bit. So um, I, I used that a bit, but I think I stuck with Mandrake until I got 
I don't think we had a proper package manager package manager then. Um, so you'd run into a lot of RPM conflicts, at least, you know, from what I understood, I couldn't get, I couldn't get past a lot of those. Um, so this is, this is my college home lab. Uh, this is in 2002 to 2004. So I had about a windows machine cause I had to for, um, for school. You can see the good old DSL reports on there. And then the other the machine on the left is my, um, as my Mandrake Linux um, machine that I did, I did some things on um, the, the top machine in those, that little triple is a penny of 166 that someone rescued for me and it's running smooth wall as the router for this whole uh for this basement apartment that i lived in um so i ran the internet into that and then i ran it into my switch and uh served internet to the whole uh the whole there's like three other people in this house um and then i, I moved to uh waterloo in 2004 uh worked for blackberry um i started in desktop support so one of the things I built uh, was an old Pentium 3. I built Gen 2, used LVM, um, and set up a software RAID. Um, these are like 120 gig or 160 gig hard drives. They're old. They're not even SATA. They're, they're ATA. Um, but, you know, I would, I would, I set it up so I could SSH into it. And I used a program called Idacoro Mobile SSH to SSH into this machine. And I threw some extra software on it. Like I think I had um irc ssa uh, one of the command line irc clients on there so i'd, I'd keep it a screen open on there and, and i'd pop into it and use it for my blackberry and i thought that was super cool um and while i was at uh blackberry i was supporting uh their blackberry enterprise server which worked with um novel groupwise so i was actually working with uh, i worked with some of the network stuff but i also worked with some of the um the SUSE Linux enterprise server uh, installations, the open enterprise server um, that uh, th that the Novell groupwise have run on. Um, so this is kind of where I'm at today. Uh, I've been using um, Linux as my primary desktop probably since 2005, 2006. I had to switch back briefly and then I've gone completely back to, uh, to using it. Uh, and I've just kind of been building up my home lab and switching. So um you know, I've got three machine, three three compute machines now, um, and a and a file server. Um, so I'm running TrueNAS scale for the for the um, for the file server, um, and then I've, I'm in the process of switching these um, these uh, Dell One U servers to probably Proxmox uh, and to see if I can cluster them. Um, my main desktop I run everywhere in the house. I've got a couple of Intel NUCs. Uh, that's what I'm running on right now is uh, Linux Mint with that XFCE. I've tried KDE, I've tried GNOME. I just like how minimalistic XFCE is. Um, so that's uh, that's what I've, I've kind of just gotten used to. Um, and uh, I've tried, uh, you know, a bunch of different server applications. So I'm running um, a free PBX as a home phone server. So I've got a bunch of IP phones um, that kind of tied into one of the jobs I had uh, where I was uh, where I was supporting their asterisk-based um, PBX software. So um, it, it was, it's cool that you can just kind of set, spin up your own um, buy a trunk line and you can have IP phones in your house and, you know, digitize your phone and it's all open source. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, my main router is actually a PF sense uh, running on a NUC with a bit of uh, VLAN trickery uh, to get it to work because it only has one network card. So I'm interested in the next month's pr um, presentation so I can kind of learn a bit more about that. Um, right now I don't have anything special running Docker. I'm running, um, I'm running them inside of a VM uh, or inside of Docker kind of handles some of that. 
uh, or sorry, TrueNAS uh, kind of handles some of that. Um, and I mean, I do a lot of my work currently. I, I work for Cisco and I, I'm a cloud engineer. So pretty much everything I'm building right now is is running on Linux. Uh, it's bare metal. Um, I think it's on Ubuntu-based machines. Um, I've done a bunch of work with the CentOS 7 or the Amazon Linux 2. Um, so I'm kind of all over the place, but, you know, I, that's just what I, I love working on uh, and developing for it. Um, I'm not, I'm not really a developer. I'm just like kind of learning, like I was saying, uh, Python and Go and uh, a lot of the infrastructure stuff like Terraform. Um, so I've just, you know, still got a long way to go, but uh, I definitely, you know, really found a passion with Linux that I really like. So I'll stick with it. Um, that's it for me. Um, so if you have any questions for me, I'm happy to answer. And I will be doing a presentation on my home lab in March. Uh, so I'll, I'll have more info on that, on it then. Okay. We're racing through these. I wasn't expecting <laughs> us to all be on time. As you um, mentioning Gentoo, uh, yeah, that was brutal. Um, compiling your, you know, I actually wanted to use my machine and it would just spend so much time compiling and just redlining the CPU all the time. And then I found Debian-based stuff like Ubuntu, and um, I was like, oh, wow, I can actually install my packages, and it has a proper package manager. And this was before Yum and uh, some like the RPM-based distros I just stayed away from for a while. Okay. Uh, so, Aaron, do we want to go next? Yeah. Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Are you going to share your screen, or are you going to upload slides? Um, I got a PDF I'll upload here. So, okay. Is it's converting? Let's see. Okay, cool. All right. Well, uh, hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Aaron, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story. Um, I'm actually fairly new to um, open source and Linux uh, as far as um, I've used it for a while, but um, more re like just in the last couple of years, I've actually started doing like projects and um, getting more involved. Uh, I am currently a uh, tech support um, where I mostly use Windows at work, um, but I've been using Linux and uh, some open source software to kind of help my job make things a little more uh, convenient. Um, so uh, first I'll talk about just kind of my inspiration for getting interested in uh, Linux and open source. So um, first thing, uh, my older brother, uh, Jacob, here you can see in the picture, uh, he is a SRE um, and he has been working uh, with Linux for as long as I can remember. He was always the uh, the computer guy in our family who would do like the networking, setting up the Wi-Fi and all that stuff. Uh, and so uh, he was always just sharing all the stuff that he was doing. Um, he brought me to a Linux Fest up in Seattle, uh, which is where we're from. Um, and I got to meet a bunch of people who are uh, working with Linux. And I got to see a bunch of presentations. And I thought it was just really cool that everyone is so open and friendly and spending uh, their free time just kind of sharing together and working on things. Um, and then he he uh he always had all these linux live cds uh at home and uh so he would just kind of give me a cd and say hey give this a try and test it out um and i had a 
an old laptop that was not working very well. And so uh, the first live CD that I tried out was uh, Linux Mint. Um, so that was uh, kind of my first exposure. Um, and then he also had um, he also had an Arduino. Um, I forget when it was, but he, he got an Arduino and he started playing around with it uh, and showing me how he was writing, uh, writing his sketches and everything. Uh, so it kind of got my mind churning a little bit about what was available. Um, and then during that time as well, he was showing me some Python and um, uh, later on he, he, he introduced me to Go, uh, Go language. So uh, that was kind of the first inspiration. Uh, and then the second thing, which is kind of the catalyst for what started me actually working on this stuff uh, seriously. Um, so I ended up going to China um, to teach English. And while I was there, uh, you know, teaching English, I, I was kind of getting used to getting, learning the culture there. Uh, and I ended up having a lot of free time. Um, and also I was living in Shanghai and there was a ton of uh, access to hardware. Um, I could get all these different parts, just really obscure things. Uh, and I could get them overnight basically. Um, so at that time, I uh, I was also, you know, teaching English. So uh, I had a lot of, um, I, I wanted a little more challenge. And so I started working on different projects uh, and I had specific uh, needs for a file server, which I'll go through here in a minute. Uh, and so I, that was kind of my first project I, I started working on. Um, so I'll talk about that next. Um, something else I wanted to say. Uh, no, okay. Oh, and also while I was in China, I um, I met up with a makers uh, makerspace, and I started uh, networking with people there and learning how to three D print, uh, and so that was that was a really cool environment. Um, so here are a couple of the projects. Uh, so as I said, I don't work with Linux uh, day to day at work, uh, but I do have a home lab and. Uh, couple of the things that I just started out with. Um, like I mentioned, when I was living in China, I, I wanted to have access to my files without having to always unplug my, uh, my external hard drive. And uh, I had a couple of bad experiences where I had a, like one of those um, plug-in uh, hard drives and it failed on me and I lost all of my teaching files. Uh, so, I uh, decided I would make something that was a little more stationary that I could just uh, come home and I could connect to the network and access. Um, so that was the first thing I started with uh, was the fi uh, file server. Um, and then since the hardware was so available over there and I um, had a lot of extra time, I, I started working on some hardware projects. So uh, a, coffee, a coffee grinder using an Arduino basically as the controller, uh, which I'll show in a second. Um, and then I also uh, set up like an auto watering system for my plants. Uh, however, my, my plants didn't need much water, so I didn't end up using it much. Uh, so, um, and then, so, but the servers, um, the servers were probably kind of the setting up these different servers was uh, where I started taking it, actually seeing like some usefulness to, to Linux, um, because when I was using it as just um, my daily driver, I, I I didn't really understand what it would be useful for, and it was just kind of uh, 
kind of interesting to play with, but yeah. Um, so I'll go through a couple of these. Uh, so uh, just on the servers though, um, the most recent one that I've just been working on is the Pixie server. And um, previously I was just doing all the servers manually and SSHing in and um, doing the configuration. Uh, with the Pixie server, I ended up doing uh, using Ansible and Vagrant to basically test the configurations and um, made a Ansible playlist so that uh, if I wanted to move the server to a different machine or uh, in my case, I'm hoping to use it at work uh, to image new computers. Uh, now I, I have a, a Vagrant or I have a uh, Ansible playbook that I can take from my home lab, bring it to work, uh, configure a, a a server there and be able to use it uh, in my daily work. So uh, I'll talk a little bit about a couple of the projects here. So um, this one here, this is, uh, as I mentioned, the first server that I worked on. Um, this is the file server that I set up while I was uh, living in China. And I used a Raspberry Pi. You can see here, this is uh, the Argon One case. Uh, has a SSD boot drive in there. Um, and then I just found this uh, hard drive enclosure and got a couple of um, uh, NAS, NAS hard drives and uh, configured them in RAID, RAID 1 um, just so I could have a little bit of redundancy. And then uh, used Samba to share uh, on my local network. Um, and I I basically haven't touched it since I set it up originally in China and I'm still using it. This picture I just took yesterday, it's still at my house here and I still use it every day. So I, that was kind of the first experience where I, I felt uh, Linux was really useful and uh, that it was unique in, in what I was able to do with it. Um, the next one, this one is uh, my coffee grinder and I gotta say, it's not exactly a practical project. Uh, this is a uh, a manual coffee grinder that I 3D printed the enclosure, uh, I 3D printed some gears and attached a motor to it. And basically I can just put the manual grinder in there, uh, use the Arduino to uh, switch on the motor, uh, walk away, brush my teeth or whatever, grind some coffee, come back, uh, and I probably could have just bought a coffee grinder, but I I really enjoyed the process of uh, learning how to write the sketches uh, in Arduino. And also um, you can see the circuit board there. Um, I soldered that myself um, with a, there's a voltage regulator and then there's a, um, a motor controller there. The motor controller I bought, um, but yeah. Anyway, so this this works. Uh, I'm still tweaking it a little bit, but uh, I still do use it. Uh, okay, so those are kind of my my projects there, uh, and that is kind of what my experience is so far with uh, open source. Um, and then I just want to touch on some of my uh, impressions of using open source so far. So as I mentioned, uh, I started out just using uh, Linux as a daily driver because my computer was not very good uh, and it was super slow with Windows. Um, I found the experience 
uh, of just using Linux as a as a operating system to be a bit inconvenient because at the time I was also had to use things like um, Excel and Word for uh, for work and for for college at the time. Um, so I was I struggled a little bit with using uh, kind of the open source software uh, and how how to make it work with the Windows software that I was supposed to be using for school. Um, I did find, uh, in my case, my computer was not very good, so it was great for being able to still use my old hardware. Um, and then the last thing was, uh, there's just so many options, which I felt uh, was a little overwhelming. However, uh, that ends up being a benefit now because when I'm using it for projects, uh, it gives me uh, being able to use open source software, uh, Linux, and also uh, using Arduino and things like this, just so much control. I can, I can change any part of the project that I want to, uh, and I have all the options available. Um, also, there's tons of support online. Uh, at my job, I'm working uh, with Windows, and sometimes I come up against the problem and it's like, well, we just have to wait for Microsoft to uh, change something or fix something. Um, but most of the time, I can find a, a, a walkthrough or a workaround for something uh, when I'm when I'm having issues with Linux. Um, and then just, there's just so many projects that I can work on. Uh, basically, anything I want to do, uh, as long as you know I'm able to kind of think creatively, uh, there's going to be some options that I can. Uh, find and some people who have done something similar. Um, and then finally, the, the most uh, interesting part for me is just the ability to just continue learning. Uh, you know, some of the parts of the projects I'm working on, I don't understand how they work specifically. But if I wanted to learn how they work, there's the information is available and I can continue to dig deeper into things and learn uh, more about what I'm what I'm working on. Uh, that's all for me. Thank you guys for your time. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, but yeah, that's it. Thank you. There's one question in the chat. Ron asked about how you can print gears. Is the plastic uh, too soft to make the gears wear out? Oh, um, well, I, so actually the gears that you see in that picture, those are in um, PLA and there is a little bit of wear on those. Um, but I printed them fairly thick and, um, it's not a big problem, but, uh, I probably would reprint them in something a little more tough. Um, but yeah, it, and also the, the motor doesn't, it's a gear motor and it doesn't spin super fast, uh, cause it's a manual grinder. So, um, it's kind of, I think intended to spin a little slower. So, um, yeah, I, I didn't. I haven't found too much uh, wear and tear on them. And Jason Paul asks, "Have you checked out the local makerspace?" I think I know the answer to this question, but you can answer <laughs> it. Uh, I have not. Uh, so actually, I live in uh, Austin, Texas, so uh, I may not be able to visit the KW makerspace. But um, I, I, yeah. I haven't found a makerspace in Austin yet either. Uh, I'm sure there are some, but I'm, I'm still kind of new to town, so. Oh, there's gotta be some in Austin. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, thank you, Aaron. If there's any other questions in 
for Aaron, you can ask them in the chat, and then we can give Supreme Leader the token. I, I think that's me. At least I have the chat now. All right. Let me yeah. upload a presentation. I uploaded your presentation from before. Oh, you did? Uh, oh, hey, it. there it is. Upload a presentation and put the check mark beside it. Check mark. Confirm. Oh, oh my presentation. Back. That's the wrong one. Uh, hey, there we go. All right. I can get started. So, as you can all see, my name is Andrew Sullivan Kant. Uh, you may have heard me say some things earlier, uh, and now I'm going to try to say other things. Uh, so, I'm going to start a little further back than maybe everybody else did. And, hey, there we go. Once upon a time, I was born in St. John's, Newfoundland in 1979. Hung out there for a little bit. And eventually, my family moved to Toronto for the majority of my childhood and all of my schooling pre-university. I attended a neighborhood Catholic school, which was fine. Then I went a little farther away for high school at Marcano Collegiate Institute for a science and math program. That was also pretty good. Eventually, I moved farther again and did a computer science degree at the University of Waterloo, which admittedly, my high school grade just barely got me into, and my university grades just barely got me out of. All this occurred during a weird feeling time when the internet and computers existed and were available, but were definitely not evenly distributed. My dad was interested in computers and programming, so we got some weird old computers. Relatively early, uh, including the TI-99-4A, which you can see on the left, and the Corona PC400 portable computer, which you can see on the right. Now, the Corona was, of course, portable because it had a handle, but it was enormous. My elementary school also had an icon computer in our classes. Uh, thank you to Jason for the picture. Uh, and in my high school, uh, we had a tech lab, and we also were experimenting with teaching typing on electronic typewriters, you can see in the bottom right. Uh, they started that the year that I first started high school. Uh, but only one of the classes got to use those, so I still learned to type on a mechanical typewriter using ribbon and ink. And because it was the 90s, eventually I got some help from Mavis Beacon too. Early on, I had decided that computers were the thing I wanted to do programming them, learning how they work, whatever. I was going to do computer stuff. Of course, I assembled my own PCs. And this was a time when upgrading a component of your, C, of your PC would make brand new things possible. And was kind of complicated. As an example, sometime in high school, after saving up my money, I excitedly paid several hundred dollars for a few more sticks of RAM. I don't even remember how big they actually were not very big. I needed to be driven to a particular electronics store in the suburbs of Toronto in order to get the deal that I wanted. And on more than one occasion, I dragged my PC to other kids' houses to play Doom and Quake together on a LAN. Oh, there's two sticks of RAM. And there's Doom and Quake. 
I logged in to multiple BBSs each day in order to try and get in my turns on various text-based adventure games, which I now say it sounds weirdly like the cow clicker type mobile phone games of today. I installed word processors and compilers using 50 plus three and a half inch floppy disks while pursuing the two inch thick manuals that they came with. The installations, of course, took multiple hours. In what I feel is a slightly weird juxtaposition, I used audio tapes for storage on that old TI-99 in the 80s and eventually used digital tapes for my own backups in the 90s. And up until late in high school, this was nearly all proprietary software. Some of it paid for, some of it freeware, some of it shareware or donationware. Uh, some of it fell off the back of the network truck, uh, and who knows where it came from. No more questions. Thank you very much. But I also started thinking about how maybe that was not great. For example, one of my early memories of playing around with the Borland C compiler was the one that I installed with the 50 plus disks, was that being able to look at the libraries was a real problem. I could debug my own programs because uh, it was all my own code, but I did not have any of the code for the compiler or the underlying libraries. If one of those libraries was broken or just behaved in a weird way that I didn't really like, I couldn't do anything about it. I could write wrappers, I could find another library, but I could never really know what was going on and I definitely couldn't fix anything. That seemed kind of wrong and bad and I did not like it. Now, I don't know if I used any other software which really could have been considered either free or open source in the late 90s, but at some point, I finally bought a copy of Red Hat Linux. Oh, wait, NetHack. Of course, NetHack. I love NetHack. And it is also very dangerous for me to play NetHack uh, because NetHack replaces sleep in my brain, which is bad. It is possible that NetHack is in fact the first piece of properly licensed free and open source software that I ever used. Anyway, back to Red Hat Linux. Continuing my theme of old timey horse and buggy ways of getting software, I took the TTC to the University of Toronto bookstore, seen here in this building, with my dad and bought Red Hat Linux in a box. The software was at least on CDs now, so I did not have to spend hours flipping floppy disks in and out of the computer. And the operating system included a ton of different programs as part of the package. Now, would I actually look at any of that open source code that I now had access to? No, absolutely not. But it felt pretty important that I could and that anybody could. Red Hat was pretty good, but my initial challenge as a new user was that I did not know how to configure things. And RPM was not yet doing automatic package dependency management. I think Jason uh, might've alluded to this too. But, so what did this look like as a user? Well, when you wanted to install a package, you did RPM install the package, something, something. Uh, and then it would tell you, you were missing a bunch of dependencies. Then you would start trying to install those dependencies. Some of them installed without a problem, and some of them had their own dependencies, which needed to be installed manually. And some of those dependencies had their own dependencies, and on, and on, and on, and on. 
It was not great, but I still liked it. It had access to lots of random software, which was pretty awesome. A year or two later, after I started at University of Waterloo, someone introduced me to Debian and Apt, and that was magic. Now, downloading software was not weird to me, as you do when you install through Debian. I had done that on BBSs before, and getting powerful software for free was also not that weird. Remember, things falling off the network truck? Again, I'm sorry. No more questions. Thank you so very much. But Debian and Apt made it so easy. One install command, a little wait, and a new piece of software and all its dependencies was just installed across the network. And nearly everything I could want was just available in the repository. No searching random websites or forums, no worries about what I was downloading. The software that I wanted was just there, clearly labeled and documented, packaged up and ready for me to install, maintained by a veritable army of volunteers just making it work. I will say again, it was magic. The experiences that I already had trying to manage licenses or other copy protection mechanisms had already soured me, and just being able to install software with the permissions of the author was really great. I learned more about the philosophy and history of free software through university, but this feeling that it was the right way to do things was started off and would stick with me. So while I've never made any big contributions to the software that I use, I have made my career choices to work primarily with free and open source software. And of course, KDLUG become a big part of that too. But I think that's outside of origin story, so I will end it here. Thank you very much. All right, that's it. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Kitchener-Waterloo Linux User Group audio podcast. Our monthly meetings are free of charge and open to all, so please join us if you are around. We meet on the first non-holiday Monday of each month from 7 to 9 p.m. in Kitchener. Please visit kwlug.org for upcoming topics, for directions, and for additional meeting information. In addition to attending a meeting, you can participate in the KWLUG community by joining our email discussion list, by offering to present a topic, or just by spreading the word about this podcast. Thanks also to IndieServe Networks, Archive.org, and CCJ Clearline for hosting our website and multimedia files, to the Working Center for offering meeting space, and to the many people who participate in the KWLUG community. Until next time, goodbye world!